This is a podcast about the auto industry, but for a second, let's talk about shopping in New York City. The Meatpacking District on Manhattan's west side has been a high-end retail destination for more than two decades. It's where you can find shops like Hermes, Loro Piana, and Brunello Cuccinelli, all on the same block, actually. But lately, the Meatpacking District has become home to a new kind of store, auto showrooms. In a two-block radius, you can kick the tires on cars from Lucid, Rivian, and Tesla. But what's interesting about these three auto brands isn't just that they've set up shop in a luxury shopping district. It's that they exist at all. I'm Sam Grobart, deputy editor at Goldman Sachs, and this is The Future of Four Wheels four-part series from The Exchange's podcast where we explore how the car is changing and what that means for industries, companies, and investors. We've already covered how the car and how we build it is changing, but what's also changing is who's building them. A rash of new car makers, the likes of which we haven't seen since the dawn of the automobile age, is upending what had been a fairly stable competitive landscape. At the same time, Established car makers are reinventing themselves to meet the growing demand for higher-tech, electrified, semi-autonomous vehicles. What's fascinating about this new competition is how mirror universe it can be. One startup's challenge is another legacy car maker's advantage and vice versa. The two camps are racing to create a new market, and they're coming at it from different ends. In this episode, we talk with someone who's living with this radical transformation every single day. He's the CEO of one of the most famous car companies in the world. We're going to hear from him soon, but first, I speak with two of my Goldman Sachs colleagues to better understand the lay of the land. This is part three, startups versus legacies. Quick note here, we're going to refer to actual companies and technologies a lot. In this episode specifically, we spend a lot of time with an actual auto CEO, but we just want to make it crystal clear. None of this is an endorsement of any one company, and none of it should be thought of as investment advice from Goldman Sachs. Okay, back to it. There are so many dynamics that are impacting the shift from ICE to EV, political, environmental, consumer demands, technology, availability of raw materials, and you have an industry which has now attracted a number of new global entrants that weren't there 10, 15 years ago. Matt McClure heads up the Industrials Group in Investment Banking here at Goldman Sachs in New York. With all the transformation going on and new players entering the market, he's pretty busy. These pure play EV business models are starting with a blank sheet of paper. The pure-play EV car makers Matt's referring to are companies like Tesla or Rivian, which obviously don't sell cars with internal combustion engines, nor do they have decades of old ways of doing things that now need to be reevaluated. Starting with a blank sheet offers these startup companies both opportunities, but also some risks. For the older car makers, the OEMs, or original equipment manufacturers, not starting with a blank sheet also brings opportunities and risks. The exact opposite ones as for the startups. Startups, for example, are not reliant on dealer networks to sell their cars. They don't have many of the constraints that the legacy OEM manufacturers face. 
They don't have the same cost structure. They are able, like Tesla, to go DTC, direct to the consumer. And startups have also moved to vertically integrate more quickly, bring more production in-house instead of relying on suppliers, which allows some of them to be more nimble, keep costs down, and move to the leading edge of software development. So while folks like Tesla may well have some partnerships, essentially they are developing everything soup to nuts, from the vehicle through to the software development, through to the battery, all the way up and down the, uh, the stack. Legacy car makers, meanwhile, have been pivoting away from their traditional business selling internal combustion engine, or ICE, cars. These legacy OEMs need to think about how they gradually shrink their ICE volume over time and replace that with EV volume, while at the same time balancing profitability that they currently have on the ICE side of the house with EV, which is more nascent and not yet at a break-even stage. That said, decades of making cars does give the OEMs some advantages that the startups don't have, starting with the fact that OEMs already have decades of experience producing cars by the millions. But the benefits don't end there. These players like General Motors and Ford have tremendous scale that some of the, uh, the nascent EV suppliers do not. Importantly, they have expertise. So they have a rich heritage in design and manufacturing. This is not their first rodeo in terms of actually designing and, and making vehicles. And then lastly, they have customer loyalty. They have strong brands, and therefore, to some extent, that creates a bit of a moot for their business. So there, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic about the forward for the legacy OEMs. Which brings us to the next way startups and incumbent car makers have differed. How they convince investors to fund their companies. To understand this, I called another one of my colleagues, Alex Mass of Goldman Sachs Asset Management in London, where he heads Europe's private market investing effort focused on sustainability and the climate transition. Alex says it wasn't that long ago that it was still uncertain if electric vehicles would win out over vehicles powered by other sources, like hydrogen. As recently as the early 2010s, legacy automakers still weren't sure. There was greater skepticism within the heritage automakers and the ecosystem around the paths for electrification and the prospect for electrification. If you look back, German automakers, Korean, Japanese automakers all publicly came out in support of hydrogen as a pathway for commercial as well as passenger vehicles. So, so there was more technological uncertainty, at least as presented by that existing ecosystem. Startup EV automakers weren't as encumbered by this uncertainty. And partly because of the low interest rate of the time, they were able to attract money in the private markets. And from there, the investment ecosystem evolved. And what you saw was that first venture capitalists, then kind of early stage growth investors, would fund the startup stage of a venture, going through a series of de-risking milestones until you would see adoption from a large automaker. And with a contract, with an offtake, with a, a partnership, a joint venture, whatever it might be, came access to, to greater capital. And the time horizon could be much longer to go through that R&D to commercialization cycle because of the low interest rate environment. If I had cash flows in five years versus in three years or seven years from a, uh, you know, kind of overall opportunity cost perspective. It was just definitionally lower. And so you saw longer time horizons, much more deep tech-focused innovation in terms of next generation chemistries within the battery ecosystem and otherwise. And, and so you saw these very diverging elements where, on the one hand, you see long-dated 
patient capital in private markets, paired with a, a relative skepticism in the, the public domain. And then very quickly, as you progress through the 2010s into 2020, you see that whole dynamic shift where private markets continue to be both very patient and long-term oriented generally, but you also see a high degree of competition around crossover sources of capital between private and public markets. And in the public markets, the trend of electrification became such that there was a huge amount of demand and interest in people that wanted exposure to this mega trend, to this electrified software-defined vehicle of the future, but there weren't very many opportunities to invest in. So you could own Tesla, and that was about it for a very long period of time. And then that universe swelled in the early 2020s. But the challenge was that while each of those companies offered exposure to the trend, they didn't necessarily have the, the balance sheet strength, the, the pr product, the partnerships, the supply chain, all the, the management teams in place to deliver on that market potential. And so you see these very diverging stories that have played out over time. And what now today looks more like an equilibrium where you have a partnership-oriented collaboration dynamic where new entrants, whether they be EV makers in China and legacy or heritage German automakers partnering around platforms for automakers, whether it be joint ventures between innovative battery manufacturers and heritage automakers, or otherwise as in this trend towards vertical integration, that entire dynamic has now changed today. In other words, there's been convergence between the legacies and the upstarts. Both have shifted to emphasizing profitability relative to growth. And Alex says that while it's tempting to attribute all of that shift to higher interest rates prevailing now, that's really just one part of a bigger story. I do think there's a pretty material difference, though, in how investors and investor ecosystems think about this world, where while interest rates are a key variable, I would actually argue that matters far more for a established automaker than it does for a new entrant, because with an established automaker, you're thinking about what is the prospect of cash flows and the value of the dividend yield today versus an interest rate, whereas for a startup or a scaling venture, it's the long-term outlook that matters. And yes, you're discounting it at a much higher rate, but the, the time horizon is very different from what I observe today between public market focus and private market focus. And so while interest rates are a huge facet, and I think candidly have resulted in a significant barrier to entry for new entrants that are not already at a critical scale, and really the determinant is less interest rates and much more execution and execution track record. Right. I mean, there's certainly been, you know, for every for every Tesla, there have been another EV startup that maybe couldn't quite get out of the gate. So I suppose that sort of creates a little bit of, a, like you say, a higher barrier of entry, a, a more scrutiny on on the execution. Absolutely. And I think there was a there's perhaps a wrong lesson that was derived from from Tesla, which is that because Tesla has succeeded, that others can succeed as well. Tesla was the exception to the rule, not the rule. Uh, and so as you look forward into an electrified, software-driven future, you see high growth rates, et cetera. But that still requires execution, business model, product differentiation, all, all these key fundamental facets of a business in order to be able to capture that value. And, and there are pros and cons, again, between the heritage and the new entrants. But, but if you think about what the avenues for differentiation are, they are software, uh, they are speed and execution, they are vertical integration, so to what degree you have control over your supply chain, their brand and customer base, their balance sheet and cost of capital. And all of that translates into what is the most important element in the automotive value chain, which is scale. 
Scale directly translates into margin, and margin translates into, again, future access to capital and how dependent you are on that funding cycle. So it all comes back to this funding question, and the ultimate objective is to avoid being dependent on external sources of capital to the degree possible. The landscape of the new auto industry has a lot of open territory, to be sure, but that doesn't make it any easier to occupy. The degrees of complexity required to set up a new car maker or reorient an existing one are immense, and fundamentals like strategy, execution, and talent are going to be the measures that both investors and consumers use to determine which companies succeed. As long as there's been an auto industry, one company has been a part of it. Mercedes-Benz. The car maker is commonly credited with inventing the automobile, going back to when Carl Benz created his 1886 patent Motorwagen. In the intervening 137 years, Mercedes-Benz has been one of the industry's most innovative companies. Four-valve engines, independent suspensions, crumple zones, electronic anti-lock brakes, radar-assisted cruise control, they were all in a Mercedes first. Which is why it's particularly, well, awesome that we get a chance to speak with our special guest for this episode, Ola Kalenius, CEO of Mercedes-Benz. Mercedes has already added more than half a dozen EVs to its global lineup, and it has plenty more in development. It's also become the first automaker to be granted U.S. state approval for what's known as Level 3 autonomy, the first autonomous driving system that allows you to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Kalenius has been at Mercedes for 30 years, so he's been a longtime witness to the evolution of the automobile, including when Mercedes was rolling out new technologies like electronic stability control and Distronic, the first radar-based cruise control. But I wanted to know when exactly he felt like things weren't just evolving, but transforming. When did he start to think, hey, wait a second, this EV and autonomy stuff is starting to become a real thing? I would say that was around 2015 and 2016. Why? Because we could see a technology path, especially on the battery technology, that would give for usually a little bit bigger vehicles that Mercedes produces. We could see a path that the energy density of batteries would improve. We had developed also new e-drive trains, powertrains, and we really kicked off our first completely dedicated all-electric architecture back then in 2015 and 2016, which are vehicles that are now in the market. And now we're on the path of kind of introducing the next generation is coming, going to come in the next two or three years. So we're on a very steep trajectory, but it's really starting to take off. If I jump to the other side of your question, what about autonomous driving, assisted driving? Well, we are the original inventors of the first assisted driving. You mentioned Distronic. That was a product that we developed in the 90s, where we said it would just be convenient for you on the highway if the, if the car could keep a certain speed. And once camera technology got into that, if it knows what other cars are doing and it can keep the speed in relation to those cars, even better. And we started from the ground up uh, in the last 25 plus years developing assistances, driving assistance systems. Those have become so sophisticated now that they feel in some cases fully autonomous. And we have even experimented with level four parking, which means you can step out of the car and the car in certain parking garages where the car works together with uh, some technology has been built into the parking garage, 
it takes over like like through an invisible hand the car goes away and parks itself while you can go into the airport and check in an invisible like an invisible valet almost it's like an invisible valet uh the first pilot was here at the airport in stuttgart so you have a zone where you drop off your car which is close to where you would go to the gate anyway and then you literally just close the door and walk away and the car finds a spot in the parking garage like magic uh, and this technology is available now. So on that side, assisted driving, autonomous driving, uh, these are the first baby steps and there's so much more to come. These kinds of changes that you're describing, going from internal combustion to electrification, going from driver directed to computer assisted, or as you point out, in some cases, even computer directed driving, these are not just switching out parts. These are not just component exchanges. This is for the whole of Mercedes-Benz. It's it's a it's a redesigning of the car, isn't it? And I and my question is, what do you have to do as the leader of that company to reorient the entire firm to all of these new changes that are happening? In a way, you could say that we are reinventing the original invention from our founding fathers. So that DNA of pushing innovation and technology is now more than 130 years later, very, very much present in our corporate culture. So if you ask the engineers, uh, do you want to move the game on? Uh, it, it, it comes natural. Uh, so both with regard to zero emission, nobody questions that in the company. We know we got to deal with the CO2 issue. We know it ends up on the on the desk of our engineers in the end. Uh, so that is going on in full force. And with regard to what happens on the digital side, autonomous driver or everything in the electric, electronic and software architecture of the vehicle, that's maybe technologically even the bigger revolution because you have to now think your electric electronic architecture completely new from the ground up. And that is what we're doing with what we call MBOS, Mercedes-Benz operating system. So we more or less a few years ago started with a white sheet of paper and have completely recreated this. And the car will be fully over the air downloadable. The profile, your driving profile and, and your settings, they're actually in the cloud, very much the same logic like you have in a smartphone. And now suddenly the car doesn't age digitally. It actually gets better with age. It's like a good French wine. <laughs> you add technology to it and you have not reached the peak capability of the car when you drive off the lot. Electric drivetrains, charging networks, new autonomous systems, cloud-based operating systems. It's a lot. Any one of these changes would be a big one for a car company. And Mercedes and others are dealing with all of them at the same time. Oh, and while they're figuring all of that out, you still have to, you know, make cars. So I asked Ola just how Mercedes does that. So if you're an incumbent manufacturer, you can't say, okay, everybody goes home now. We start the company again, and we now start making electric vehicles. That obviously wouldn't work. Uh, so you have to come... Uh, you have to come up with a plan for transition. And I would divide it into two different areas, the vehicle assembly as such, and the vehicle and the powertrain. On the vehicle assembly side, we have actually already turned all of our plants around the world into dual use. So we can build the electric vehicles in a flexible way together with the combustion sibling cars on the same line. 
this is transition that's not going to happen overnight. We're talking about a 10, 15, maybe 20 year journey to go from 100% combustion based to eventually 100% zero emission electric based. So for us, the name of the game on the vehicle side is flexibility. And that is working already today. On the powertrain side, it's a little bit different. You cannot assemble a high-tech battery on the same line that you build, uh, I don't know, a V8 engine or a sophisticated transmission. Those are indeed different industrial structures. So here, yes, you have already the industrial structure to cope with the combustion scenario. Since we will have a gradual run-up on the electric side, you don't have to invest into more capacity on that side. It's more about managing over this longer period of time what that crossover looks like. And at the same time, build up new capacity on the powertrain side uh, for, for electric. And that goes all the way down to the supply chain, all the way down to the mine. If, if oil was the basis for combustion-based mobility, you could almost argue lithium is the new oil when it comes to electric cars. So you really have to go deep here, all the way down to the raw materials, the refining, and then of course, uh, building the different components and the systems, and ultimately the powertrain and the vehicle. So we're working on both ends doing this. And this is while you're, you're changing while running here, you can't just stop and do it. You have to do it while your business is operating. One sort of specific question I just thought of when you were, t when you were giving that answer, are there new unbuilt combustion engines in development anymore? Or, or have, have you built the last ICE engine at Mercedes-Benz already? The high-tech electrified combustion offerings that we have, and, and, and this is important, every single combustion product that Mercedes puts on the road has an electric component to it. So they're all mild hybrids or so-called 48-volt systems. Yes. And of course, there is more work to be done on the emission side and so on. So it's not like we just let them be. We make sure that we're going to stay at the top of technology there. But starting now fundamentally new powertrain projects from the ground up, that is going to uh, slowly but safely fade away. So in terms of the engineering effort and the uh, capital allocation of powertrain, Yes, we have another couple or three or four years where there's still uh, sizable investments on the combustion side, but then it starts ramping down quite rapidly. And most of the spend uh, slash uh, eventually then all of the spend goes into the EV. But since we have the latest and greatest technology on that combustion side, those will be able to take us well into the 30s. So we have this tactical flexibility, if you will, uh, throughout this decade and into the next decade, even though we have clear strategic goals. Every automaker still relies upon a network of other suppliers who build individual components. Moving to EVs and increasingly self-directed cars must require not only changes in your own organization, but also changes in who those suppliers are, some of which are entirely new. How, how have you approached that change? Building a car is the ultimate team sport. So even though we're now changing to a degree who does what, and yes, we are going for more vertical integration, especially on the software side. We have hired uh, in the last few years more than 3,000 software engineers because much of the work that used to happen at the suppliers are now in-house. 
but we still work with many suppliers and tech partners. But we make sure that we are the architect of that software stack and we're the architect of that electric electronic overall system. So you will find the partners that you have been working with for decades, uh, they're still in the game and you continue to work with them. But you have an increasing number of tech companies that maybe 10 years ago you would not have necessarily cooperated with. But now you integrate their technologies into your car because we want to make sure that our customers get the best customer experience. So whatever is out there is the best tech offering, maybe things that you're used to from your smartphone world and you want to have the same experience in the car. We reach out to those tech companies and integrate them into one seamless Mercedes experience. But we remain the architect of it. We're not handing the car over, the digital side of the car over to anybody else and say, uh, you do that and you have the interface to the customer. We think it's crucially important that the interface to the customer remains through Mercedes-Benz. Right. Your company has a, a strong tradition of developing a lot of its technology in-house, right? In this new realm, in, the, in, this, in this new world, you are working with partners, as you mentioned. How do you start to decide where you bring something in and where perhaps it is better for a partner like, say, NVIDIA right, to be the semiconductor partner for Mercedes-Benz? For crucial technologies that are the differentiating ones for the customer and kind of the things that make a Mercedes a Mercedes, we still have that same philosophy. We set the ambition, we set the targets, we select the best partners in the world. We work together with them to deliver against that target. If you mention NVIDIA, yes, we're working on the next generation autonomous drive with NVIDIA, why? because we felt they had the most uh, performant chipset in the world for what we need in the future and a very, very capable software team. So we married their software team with our software team that has more than 25 years of experience in this. And together with them, we're developing then the next generation of what automated driving should look like. If I jump over to the electric drivetrain, yes, we've also worked with suppliers there but we have deep, deep understanding of what a drivetrain for a Mercedes is all about. So when we now develop the next generation drivetrain, yes, it's an in-house development. Some components come from suppliers, but we control the technology. So everything where we feel these are the things that are transforming the auto industry, these are the things that matter to the customer, these are the things where, you know, the things that make a Mercedes a Mercedes, how it rides, drives, how quiet it is, the longevity of the car, the quality, all of those different things. Even if you don't know anything about cars, you close your eyes, you're in a Mercedes, it just feels right. All of those things we still want to control because ultimately it is about the customer experience and is the star on the hood and our brand promise that stands behind it. Mercedes isn't just a car maker, it's a business one that functions in a world of shareholders, profits, and earnings results. With that in mind, I asked Ola how he talks to investors about this massive transition. I think everybody that invests in the auto industry understands that the ultimate journey is towards zero emission. There are no two ways about it. We can argue about how long it takes, the financial implications of it, there are some technology choices, but we're going towards zero emission. And if you're a long investor, you're going to want to invest in an automaker that understands that and is also putting its money where its mouth is. And that the digital revolution, the compute revolution, how much compute power we can put in vehicles now, new sensing technologies, artificial intelligence, 
that helps power the uh, software algorithms that we have in our cars, that you have to also invest in that to make the cars safer, uh, to make the cars more fun, more use cases for the customer. I think that is also clear. So where we're going technologically, I believe that the uh, sophisticated investors, they understand that. And certainly Mercedes has made a very, very, very clear decision. And I think that's been our attitude as the original startup in the auto industry, by the way. You always need to keep that mentality. We have made it very, very clear. We're betting on the future. And that is where we're putting our capital and our engineering resources. But by the same token, we're not venture capital financed. An established company can't be. So we have to be our own venture capitalist. That is why in this era of transformation, where for us that still have a combustion-based business that is very profitable, produces cash flows, and building up a future profitable EV business, we have to generate those cash flows ourselves. So in a way, you're investing at the highest level maybe in company history due to the transformation. But at the same time, you're pushing efficiency in the company more than ever before can sometimes feel a little bit schizophrenic to the organization that you're working hard on fixed cost structures on efficiency and so on. But the reason why we're doing this is to free up that capital to invest in the new so that the investor uh, can trust us. We're not short on cash for those future investments. We pinch every penny. We don't want to waste any money, obviously. But we have the muscle, the financial muscle to see this transformation through and we intend to continue to be our own venture capitalist throughout this whole process. You have incredibly ambitious goals for what the Mercedes of the future and to an extent what the car of the future will be. If from your vantage point today, what would be an example of a challenge, something that needs to either be created or solved or addressed that will help make those visions a reality? Are there any sort of mm, speed bumps right now that you see ahead of you? So on the technology verticals that we're talking about, what is it all about? Uh, I'm going to start on the battery side. On the one hand is to improve energy density of the chemistry. So you can either get more range or you can make smaller batteries. You take cost and weight out of the vehicle. That's one of the challenges that we're working on. And there are many also game-changing technology horses in the race, and we will see which one of them finish the race and maybe which ones uh, will not work. That goes along with also charging speed and building up an infrastructure, charging infrastructure that we have decided to invest in a worldwide Mercedes charging infrastructure, send a signal to our customers. If you get an EV from Mercedes, we got your back. In fact, we just opened these days, the first dedicated charging station for Mercedes in Atlanta, where we have our US uh, headquarters. Be beautiful charging experience. So it's not just about the car in, in, in this system change that we're seeing. It's also about the enabling factors as well. On the autonomous drive and on the digital side, compute power, we already have phenomenal amount of compute power that we can package in the vehicle. But we will have multitudes of that only three, four, five years from now. And we are creating learning machines. We're using artificial intelligence to create learning software-driven machines that become better and better and better so that more and more situations can be autonomous. And in all situations, driving becomes safer.
So all of these things are things that we're pushing along. Uh, if you would ask the engineers, they would talk about opportunities and <laughs> not challenges. If, if engineers have throughout uh, the history of mankind shown one thing, ingenuity and creativity never runs out. So uh, usually more happens than you think about now. And uh, I think in these next five to 10 years, it's really going to be a revolution as opposed to an evolution. Challenges and opportunities. For both the oldest and newest car makers, the industrial landscape has never been as uncharted. The risks and rewards of navigating that landscape are forcing the industry to rethink almost every part of their strategies. Where will this all end up? Hard to say, but one thing is certain. The future of the automobile industry is being determined right now. Next episode, we go outside of the car and into the world it's created. How do our surroundings change? Physical infrastructure, the economy, and our daily lives, how do they all change when the car changes? The opinions and views expressed in this program are not necessarily the opinions of Goldman Sachs or its affiliates. This program should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person without the express written consent of Goldman Sachs. Each name of a third-party organization mentioned in this program is the property of the company to which it relates and is used here strictly for informational and identification purposes only and is not used to imply any ownership or license rights between any such company and Goldman Sachs. The content of this program does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient and is provided for informational purposes only. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice through this program or to its recipient. Certain information contained in this program constitutes forward-looking statements, and there's no guarantee that these results will be achieved. Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide updates or changes to the information in this program. Past performance does not guarantee future results, which may vary. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this program and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. And a very special thanks to Wolfgang Fink and the team at Goldman Sachs in Frankfurt for helping set up our interview with Ola Kalenius.